Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Olaf Sackers about his new book, Mobility Disruption Framework. Olaf is one of the general partners at Red Blue Capital, a new mobility venture investment firm that he founded. Prior to this, he was at Meneve Mobility for six years with Michael Granoff, a friend of Micromobility Industries and a previous guest on the podcast. I loved this episode with Olaf. It was one of my favorites. I really wish I'd written what Olaf wrote, which is always a good place to start from. It covers a lot of the same ideas that we've covered on this podcast, all in one coherent, cogent framework, and helped me really get my head around some of the concepts that I've been thinking about for a few years, but hadn't been able to easily articulate. I cannot recommend it highly enough, and I really encourage you to go check it out and read it before you have a listen to this if you've got a chance. Thanks to Riley Brennan for putting me onto it. In the meantime, I want to do a further shout out to Micromobility America, the world's largest summit devoted to small electric vehicles which returns to the San Francisco Bay Area on the 23rd of September for an immersive in-person gathering. We at Micromobility Industries are hell-bent on breaking the old paradigm of car dependency and getting the world back moving again safely and sustainably. This event will be jam-packed with a day full of talks, demos, meetings and test rides with Micromobility's top global founders, policymakers, investors and influencers. There'll be over 500 startups and established players, and you'll have a chance to test the latest technology and vehicles for the first time in nearly two years. We'll be taking advantage of the beautiful Californian weather as well, doing as much as possible outdoors and headliners, including a political upstart by the name of Andrew Yang, you may have heard of him, veteran tech reporter Lauren Good, and e-scooter racing trailblazer Lucas Degrassi, and dozens more. Check it all out at micromobility.io. And with that, here is Olaf. Let's go. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Olaf Sackers from Red Blue Capital. How are you doing? Today, doing pretty Olaf? good. Great to be on. Excellent. And where are you joining from today? I'm in New York City, the densest city in America. Eee. Yes. <laughs> Has lots of marvelous things about it in, in like uh, in like New transit. York. Lots of lots of <laughs> that it works. Yeah, I mean, no, no lots of... of transit, but also as well like. That was the birthplace of Rebel. That was the birthplace of, obviously, like the largest bike share system in... in oh, although in I'm in Manhattan and they're very much Brooklyn-centric. Like, there's like these strong identities oh, in New right. York, so they're like Brooklyn first. Oh, interesting. Funny. Funny. Hey, well, look, I've had Michael Granoff on from Money before, and, I, you know, I hadn't realized that you'd made the shift on from Money. So, look, I would love to have you talk through your background and like how you came to doing what you're doing with red blue and and then we're going to go and dig into this mobility disruption framework because i just yeah there's so much there i was at Manif for about six years so basically working with mike to launch a venture capital fund focused you know exclusively on mobility we started out focused more on israeli technology startups that were selling into the automotive supply chain i think mobilize like the archetype of those kinds of companies obviously much older company, but super, super successful and really changed the automotive industry. So we saw a wave starting in 2016 of these kinds of startups kind of taking shape, started making small investments into them and then created a a venture capital fund, which was Meneve around them. And then Mm -hmm. through the second fund, which had backing from, you know, several major car makers and suppliers and a few other strategics, the focus shifted more and more globally. And Prescott and I, who also recently left Maniv to, to join me at, at Red Blue, which we kind of founded together, have increasingly been driving that global focus and investment. Yeah. Then looking at emerging markets like India and Latin America, in addition to developed markets like Europe, US, and obviously Israel are remaining a focus. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we got to the end of the, the second fund, we kind of had a decision point and we decided to kind of go off on our own and set up a new fund. So that's what we're doing. We're excited about it. And so, and Red Blue specifically, when you say you're looking at all around the world, is that in part where the mobility disruption framework came from? Was it was it when you were thinking through the, how you were going to look at your own investments for Red Blue? So I wrote this piece already back in 2017, about business model shifts 
in the transportation industry, just thinking like from a top-down perspective, how car makers think about, you know, how they change their business model, autonomous vehicles, which was really my entry point into this. I got really excited about autonomous vehicles when I was yeah. I was in the IDF. I was a soldier in the IDF. A lot of free time on my hands because I was much older. I went there after college and started reading about self-driving cars and, and got really excited. And the thing that made me really excited about self-driving cars was that they could solve at least in theory, all the inefficiencies of the current ownership model, because you don't need yes. to own a self-driving car, you can share it. And so that changes all the kind of inefficiencies. So that was the starting point for me already with self-driving cars back when I was getting into the space. So a lot of these thoughts about business model and how car makers are shifting, et cetera, were around this idea, which then I think has become more and more crystallized in my mind as I've thought about it. The really hard thing isn't to like know that there's something up and there's all these shifts. I think it's to kind of create a framework which makes sense of everything which mm. like when you look at it it's like duh that's so obvious you know obviously that that's how yes. it works it's like a mathematical algorithm like once you've solved the equation then you know the solution seems obvious but the actual process of figuring it out is kind of tricky so that's kind of been the, the process like all along trying to make sense of this stuff better and i guess this is like the culmination of six or seven years of of thinking through these things and and sorting it out and if anything, I think micromobility, because Uber was already kind of on the rise like the whole time that I've been involved in this mm. space. But micromobility, I think, really shifted the equation and made people think, you know, like, it was like, what is this thing? It's like, you know, Uber in some way, like regulators are really upset with these companies, but it's also really different because, I mean, we didn't even have a word for micromobility at the outset, no. right? Like that's a, it's a more recent yeah. invention of Horace's. I think that's what, yeah, yeah. Horace and team where Horace has really sung like done done such a really good job I think in this space has been just to say you know I spot these things and I work out how to give them a name and so that I think has been a really valuable addition a small point on that as almost as an ode to Horace in this book I don't refer to bike lanes I only refer to micromobility lanes because what is that space it's like this third road space it's not just for bicycles, it's not just for e-bicycles, it's for all sorts of different types of vehicles that are starting to fill it up. So even shifting the name of the infrastructure, I think, is helpful. It's weird to talk about micromobility without also having the infrastructure complemented, because I think the rise of scooters has been so dependent on the rise of bike lane infrastructure across cities. Totally. I would love for us to kind of go the way that you break down the book or the framework, and I will link to this in the show notes, folks, for ones who are listening here. And it is well worth a read. It's a, you know, it's a little bit of a read. It's, it took me half an hour or so, and I there were probably areas where I might have skipped over it because I'm like, I'm pretty confident I understand these particular areas. It's a great framework for thinking about the kind of, it, in some ways to me, when I read it, if I, if I may, it felt to me like, one, we should have written this, you know, but I, and I'm glad that someone did because we hadn't. But it really unifies a lot of the ideas that we've had and talked about on this podcast together into one place. You know, it's the idea of what does a trip look like? What is the job to be done? How do we think about that? What are the vehicles that go into it, et cetera? And then going through all the way through into technology, enabling technologies, infrastructure, and how they intersect and what the economics of all of that are. So can you kind of take us through the, if you would, if you had two minutes to explain it, what would be the, the top line that you would give folks? The key thing is it's a description of how our lives are shifting from an ownership only model of getting around so owning a car in in most places is kind of the default mode of getting around to having an array of mm -hmm. options so having a whole lot of different marketplaces that you can interact with to solve all the different kinds of needs that you have to get to one place or another or to get things to you which you need i think that's the that's the biggest kind of piece of this equation because when you shift away from just this ownership paradigm to a trip paradigm, you have all these different choices that suddenly open up to you. And the world kind of has a different set of realities that you can then leverage. And they're usually based around your smartphone. These are apps for the most part that live on your phone that then interact with the physical world, objects like scooters or you know couriers that go from restaurants and bring stuff to you that then creates these new options or, or possibilities. And because it's a marketplace for each trip, you pay for each trip. So you're paying a set price for an Uber ride or for a scooter ride or for food delivery. And that whole aspect of it, the, the marketplace aspect where you've got 
visible prices and a lot of information and choices with different companies offering services that are competing against each other is kind of the magic of it because it it creates a massive amount of innovation, a much more rapid shift in technology and why I think the last five years have felt so exciting relative to the last hundred years in terms of the transportation industry. So that's, I think, kind of in a nutshell, it's, it's talking about the shift towards the trip economy and all the consequences that then come. The current paradigm of ownership is very inefficient, and I outline all those inefficiencies in the introduction. And this new mm-hmm. model is creating new kinds of efficiencies, solving new kinds of problems, but also trying to deal with you know, consumer rationality and other kinds of challenges along the way, and also creating a lot of interesting possibilities from the perspective of regulators and regulations and pricing and externalities and all the, all the things that are broken about transportation. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, great. This is super good. Yeah, because we're gonna we're gonna come to the intersection with regulators and, and infrastructure, I think, later on, because I think that that is such a for me it's one of those things that's so hard. And I actually wrote an article about two years ago talking about how the pointy edge of tech hits the hard edge of concrete of transportation infrastructure. And it's just and, and it's like it's yeah, it's a very it's a very hard one to solve uh necessarily quickly. It's basically the digital meets, you know, the physical, right? Like that's yeah. that's the challenge of transportation is it's real world stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that the, the journey for you was through or into transport was through autonomous cars because that's actually how I ended up at Uber was I was way back in the day, 2014, I was like, oh man, autonomous future, this is where we're going to be going. I joined Uber because I thought that would be the most logical place where, as you talk about in the business models, you shift away from that idea of just owning what you call a dog, and we, we can go into what, what you think a dog is, like a person-owned vehicle to being able to go to, I want to consume my trips. And and I think fundamentally, that was the business innovation of Uber, and generally speaking, like has kickstarted a lot of this whole conversation around why we can think of disrupting traditional or traditional car ownership as, we, as we've known it today. There's a couple of things in there that I really want to unpack, which is, you talked about the trip decision triangle. Can we just break that down? Because I thought there was some really interesting insight there. Can you just kind of explain to listeners what it, what, what it is? Yeah, so the, the idea is basically in each of these marketplaces, you have, whether it's an Uber trip or a scooter trip or food delivery, you have a supply side, which are the companies offering these services, and you have a demand side, which are the consumers purchasing these products or services. And they are constantly making decisions based on the price signals. So I've got this kind of whole matrix of all the different factors that go into both what will influence a consumer to make a certain decision. Some consumers want to get someplace really quickly and they might take ride hailing. Some people want a cheaper trip. Some people want convenience or comfort. So there are all sorts of different factors factoring in on the demand side of the marketplace. And then for the suppliers, they've got all these different factors on the supply side, you know, the cost of providing the trip, the energy that goes into it, the space capacities of the vehicle, the reliability, uh, the powertrain. So those two things kind of bubble down into a price which the consumer needs to be willing to pay and the supplier needs to be able to deliver the service at. And so that's the fundamental nature of a marketplace and why there's so much more efficiency in this model because all these companies are competing on every single trip to lower that price, unlike the ownership paradigm. But the third side of that triangle, of the the trip triangle, is externalities. If there's a price on every single trip, and that price is basically a culmination or accumulation of, of all these different factors, from a regulatory perspective, you can price in all sorts of different externalities into that price. So say there's a particular road that is congested at a particular time of day, and you've got the GPS of the route on which the food delivery vehicle is going along or the Uber is riding along, a regulator can then create some kind of rule that's applied by the suppliers across the board that there's this extra charge on that particular route. Or if a vehicle is above a certain weight, that that weight should incur a certain additional cost because it creates safety consequences or environmental consequences that want to be discouraged. Now, I'm not like advocating that regulators, you know, get into all these details and start controlling every aspect of a trip, but it does give a tool set to be much more precise in factoring in all the negative things that come with any kind of trip. And I think that is a really interesting possibility of a trip marketplace, is the potential for regulation to start dealing with negative externalities. Because the reality is transportation has lots of negative externalities, which are just market failures. 
And with price signals, a much more efficient outcome for everybody can be created. So just like congestion, mm. as an example, like if you have one extra car added to the equation, you suddenly slow everybody down. So if you can price it in a certain way to avoid that scenario, it can actually create a, an outcome that's that's much better for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I loved that part of the discussion, which was that, it, you know, this, this framework can absorb, hey, someone who owns a vehicle and says, look, I bought this vehicle for whatever I bought it for, $20,000. The demand side of the equation is, I wanna go to all these places. The supply side is, I have a car. And the externality is, I pay my road well, taxes and I pay yeah. for fuel. Or I don't care, right? And and a lot and a lot of it comes down to I don't care. And the reality is world. they're very effective lobbying. Yeah, yeah. And, and and as well, they've also got very effective lobbies to be able to go. And I'm not like anti-car. I'm very pro-car. I love cars, but it's also like I believe that they should fit into where the the thing that's cool and where I see these marketplaces emerging. And obviously, I you know this is a lot of the work that we were doing at Uber is going. The challenge has been, it's very easy to go and target try and capture the externalities of some for example like let's charge ubers are very specifically ubers a congestion charge if they go into a city or the example that you gave in that in that um in in this uh in this um uh, uh mdf is is talking about for example portland putting a 25 percent charger in each scooter trip yeah right and speed limits which they go and put speed limits on literally like physically limited inside of the scooter inside specific areas but then we won't do that same thing for privately owned vehicles and so it's always just comes down to well this feels like a bit of a an unfair and uneven balance in terms of how that plays out my, my favorite example in this front is the outrage people have about scooters cluttering up the sidewalk and the reason yes. the reason there's such aggression about sidewalk space is because so little of it has been left over once the cars have eaten up the on-street parking the three lanes in each direction for them to kind of go through. And so you've got this tiny sliver of land where then pedestrians are competing with other other things like scooters to park. And it's kind of like this kind of sad situation where people are really upset because they've narrowed their frame of reference to within the small box. And if you look outside the box, yes. if you look at, you know, the broader paradigm of how we're just like giving up like a third of urban space to car infrastructure, then you can actually see the real culprit and the real culprit is the massive subsidies that have gone to cars. And I, and I show you a view, like cars are great in all sorts of ways, but they shouldn't have an unfair advantage. They should be on the same level playing yes. field as everything and they should pay for their externalities the same way everything else is, is being required to. Totally, but I think in defense of them or they will argue in their defense that they have been the only option that's provided that people with the ability to have that level of mobility to date and so, yes, you might go and allocate road space for bikes or any of these other things, but those things are, you know, they're not going to be able to provide the same level of service or the same kind of capabilities. So, so I look at, for, for example, I live in New Zealand, we have two, 80, like 860 cars per thousand people. It's like the highest in the OECD. And we have an incredibly car dependent transport system. And it's because we've kind of only invested in car infrastructure for the last 50 years, you know? And so... When, when you try and say we want to create space that's going to take space away from cars, people will really, really push back on it. Where I think the space will come and why I get excited about micromobility in general is that idea that like people will buy e-bikes and those e-bikes are not going to be as good on all these other metrics as a car, but they will be good enough to be able to get people around in a way more performant way than a standard bike or a walking would. And so it enables you to have a vehicle that's small and fits into the urban fabric that's competitive to the car and we we start seeing that the, the kind of the lobby around e-bikes or micromobility or whatever getting enough of a foothold to get a little bit stronger to then go on a demand for some space which then becomes a part of positive feedback cycle against the car that that's how i kind of maybe see stuff like that coming you, you can go in like a, a cars versus everything else framework but I, I think part of the goal of this is is to kind of celebrate choice you know, the, the beauty of trip marketplaces is they give you more options. And I think this is the good thing about markets in general is they increase consumer choices and get, you know, who knows exactly what the right solution for every person in the world is. People have to, you know, make decisions based on their unique perspective and the unique reality. The And in many cases, a car will be the right decision. If you have, 
you know, three kids and they have, you know, toys that they want to carry around with them and you've got a, a baby seat at the back. Like that's a much easier way to live your life than to try and get everybody into, you know, a train and then transfer onto a bus. So there are many, many lives in which the car will be a great solution. But the reality is that we've run up into all sorts of restrictions in the way that we've built our world around cars. And I think there's an increasing movement, a backlash, mostly focused in cities, where people are looking at this reality and saying, why have we given all of the space to cars? Why, is, why are cars you know, favored to such an extreme extent over other options? Such that if I want to take a bike trip from one side of the city, maybe on your e-bike or maybe on a shared scooter, there isn't even, you know, a set of lanes that I can ride along without being threatened by, you know, massive SUVs that are going to like potentially kill me if they if they ride into me. There's no safe way to make that trip. So actually, the problem with cars is the extent to which they've removed other options. I think, you know, it's great to have that as a choice and an option and it should be factored in and balanced against the other choices. But the challenge is really to build out the set of options that, that create the most effective range of outcomes for the most number of people. And, and I think there yeah. are lots of ways in which cars don't do that. Man, I could talk about all this stuff for forever, but I, I, I'm keen to move on because there's a very specific... You, you, so the way that you broke it down is you have the trip triangle, the tri- decision-making framework, and how these the emergence of these marketplaces has obviously helped in the space. And then looking at going, okay, cool. So what are the enabling factors around what mobility is, is, is going to look like? And obviously the big one there is electrification. This is the one that obviously we, we're very bullish on here in micromobility and why we think that kind of it underpins the technology that we're looking at here. But you had this great way of kind of talking about, well, hydrogen, which I hadn't seen before. So I would love for you to kind of take us through, you know, where you see the development going in terms of electrification and what, why that's interesting, but then also hydrogen and what the challenges have been to date and then where you think that that's going to go to. Sure. You mentioned the cats and dogs. I like a good underdog. I feel like hydrogen <laughs> in, this, in this equation is, is kind of an underdog because electrification has become... From from what, you know, I think many people thought was delayed, like when are we actually going to have EVs to now we're living in this world where like EVs are completely inevitable. Nobody's really asking, you know, is the world going to transition to electric vehicles by and large? Uh, they're just asking at what rate. But hydrogen has been, I think, kind of not thought about so much, although there are several car makers that have continued to invest quite significantly, especially Toyota and Hyundai yeah. Yeah. In, in rolling out new generations of hydrogen vehicles. So the reason I focus on on hydrogen is I I don't think it's an either or. I think hydrogen has many complementary aspects to electric vehicles uh, in the types of use cases it's useful for. Basically, batteries aren't super dense relative to uh, hydrogen or even gasoline, but hydrogen is, is significantly dense even than gasoline. So the weight costs of batteries are restrictive in, in certain use cases. Obviously, battery chemistry is advanced quickly and, and, and the ways in which that's addressed. But hydrogen has many use cases in transportation that are arguably uh, better in the long term as you basically reduce the upfront costs as, you, as the technology matures and vehicles become cheaper to manufacture with fuel cells then arguably long-range trucking, for instance, is a great application, which electric vehicles just aren't quite as well positioned to deal with. But the broader argument around hydrogen isn't just about transportation. Like, maybe it's going to be useful for transportation. Maybe people are going to get really excited about Mirais at some point, and, you know, they can build out this enough hydrogen. the Toyota Mirais, the sort of fuel cell car, yes. The the Prius 2.0, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. So the, the, the James James May had one and swore by it and then sold it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you need you need a you know you know hydrogen charger in order to use it, and I, I guess rolling those out is 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 still a, a work in progress. But I think EVs were at this point at some point. But but anyway, that you don't need hydrogen vehicles to be adopted on mass for hydrogen as an energy source to make a lot of sense because hydrogen can be moved in similar ways to which traditional fuel is moved through tankers moving on the ocean. It can be produced uh, in a green and clean way in a lot of the places where fossil fuels are currently extracted. And they can plug into use cases like metal production, 
which you also want to clean up at some point, especially because EVs make cars somewhat heavier. So even if you're trying to clean up, you know, green up vehicles, then having cleanly produced steel can, can be important. It can be used for energy in homes. And I think if you look at the grid, you know, there are many different sources of energy on the grid. And in order to have significant reductions in carbon emissions from the grid, you're, you're going to need a, a different mix of, of energy sources. And hydrogen fits into that quite well. Up yeah. to this point, governments have invested relatively little into hydrogen subsidies versus you know, batteries uh, and electric vehicles. So I think there's a lot of headroom for the cost to come down through government support on a level playing field with electric vehicles. And I think the costs of several of the use cases are very attractive and in a stable state once those investments have been made. So that's the argument I'm making. I mean, I'm throwing a lot of information here and there's a lot of charts in the, charts in the book about it. But I think it's basically a bit of an underdog. But I think over the next decade or two, there is a real place for hydrogen within the energy mix. And I just, like you said, hadn't heard any voices making that argument. So I did some work to really understand it. And I think there's a lot of potential there that 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 should be recognized. Yeah, so I, I think that the story about hydrogen has been, Elon has been very negative on hydrogen for a long time. And I mean, he laughed at when Toyota came in, obviously was doing it. I do think that there's probably validity in the idea of doing heavy vehicles. The one part that I did find interesting though, is just the this idea that like, you thought that the total overall cost of ownership, you, you lay out a pathway in which the total overall cost of ownership becomes the same price for a hydrogen vehicle as it does for an electric vehicle when you look at the total cost of ownership, which is the first time I've ever seen that kind of laid out that that would be a possibility. Because obviously the like the big appeal to electric, especially over the kind of the medium term, is that the cost of batteries is gonna get a lot lower and then the overall, that the marginal cost is so much lower. So your total cost of ownership ends up being substantially cheaper than for example, a traditional ICE engine. Yeah, and, and the question is like, what is the cost of producing hydrogen, which is especially green hydrogen, which is the only kind that really matters if you care about climate stuff. So right now it's about $6 per kilogram. And the question is how new hydrolysis technologies can reduce that cost at scale and then how building out supply chains and infrastructure can also cheapen the delivery of it. Right now, the delivery is not so great. It's like hard to you know, refuel your Toyota Mirai, uh, mm. even if you're in California. A yes. little easier in Japan where they're building up more infrastructure. And the cost of production is, is still high. But, you know, the, the thing about markets is at scale, costs come down. And I think, you know, a core part of why hydrogen vehicles can be cost efficient over time is that the density at which the energy is stored within the vehicle is much higher with, with hydrogen fuel. And that mm. allows it to have greater range. And then another aspect of the TCO calculation is if your refuel time is half as long or, you know, 15 times shorter as I think it mm. currently is the case compared to even fast charging, then your asset, if you're thinking about a fleet like Amazon with delivery vehicles or, you know, trucks or something like that, if you have to spend, you know, a third of the day charging versus a few minutes refueling with hydrogen, then that can actually make a big difference to your cost structure because the asset is being used a lot more of the time. So the, mm. it really depends on how the asset is being used and it's for fleet operators to make the decisions about what the best fuel source is for that particular use case. The cool thing about the trip economy is everything shifts from you know individuals who you know don't necessarily think about what the the cheapest fuel source is and how to operate an entire network and how to build out the the refueling stations in the optimal locations to a model where you've got large fleet buyers and operators who can then think about these things on a system level and therefore make decisions that are based on the most efficient outcomes. That's kind of how this all ties back into the trip economy. Totally. Well, then this also brings us to cats and dogs. So, I mean, I, th I found out of... There's two, two things in this entire paper that I just found were like, this is book, which I just... I think a genius uh, and, and when I saw them I just laughed because I thought they were brilliant but one of them is cats and dogs and the other one is TCC which we'll get to but um, can you explain cats and dogs and, and kind of at a top line why they are and then why you decided to try and do something like this yeah I'm trying to think of like how the, the thought kind of first occurred to me but basically you know the words were manipulated to spell uh, these these particular words dedicated owned goods or, or, or dogs yes. with the idea that like which is a car or, or something similar I actually have like e-bikes and bicycles that are owned also in the dog category 
But basically, and, and then cars are, are common asset trips, so this trip economy. So you got these two paradigms. And, and the line that, I, that really kind of worked, like the moment I kind of knew was when I, I read this line, you know, uh, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's so true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. And, and, right. and like we really live in like household pet obsessed worlds, you know, like dogs are a key part of people's dating profiles now, right? Like having a picture with a dog is like essential uh, or a cat mm-hmm. and I'm a cat person or a dog person, you know, dog parks, the way in which our cities have been built up. Like th- there's so much about these these pets that are so intimately tied to our lives. They tie into personalities in a strong way, and you know, so so the, the there's a whole kind of thing around it that's become very powerful. But it, it's somehow like these different frameworks, these these models of being a cat person or dog person or having one preference or the other, really helped also illuminate this shift or the the choices people have between you know taking trips or owning a, a vehicle. And it's really not necessarily an either or. You can have you know, a car and take Ubers to the airport, right? Like most people do that. Mm-hmm. Most people are ordering Amazon packages. And most people in reality, you know, they appreciate many things about cats and they appreciate many things about dogs and they watch memes from both species on Instagram all the time. Yes. So, but, but, but anyway, that, that was, that was the, the core idea. And I saw it as a tool to really illuminate because I think the challenge is seeing you know, all these different options so clearly, like we kind of think of them in discrete ways, like I need to go to the airport, like I'll take an Uber. But you don't think of it as like this whole array of choices that I'm making all the time. So it, it wasn't just the cats and dogs, but I kind of evolved it into a kind of card game or board game where each person individually is playing a game in which they hold, you know, a set of options. They can play a cat or a dog and decide mm-hmm. to solve each trip problem with one of these particular cards. And I think that yes. really kind of helps illuminate the choice we all have as individuals and the new reality we're living in, where we have all these choices and the choices have their own personalities and characters. So all these cards have different stories behind them and, and personalities that you kind of have to look at them to see. But there's like, on the one hand, like Ernesto, who is a light rail train, right? So a cat, mm-hmm. shared vehicle. Yes. And and he's very much like a you know a hipster who believes that you know you shouldn't engage with this little quote about like you shouldn't be a pawn of large companies sent from iPhone. So yes. you know, the, and and I think that I think that ties into a lot of ways in which people think about light rail construction and the kinds of people who support yeah. it and like it. And then you've got like Grunt, you know, who's like a, a big pickup truck and is like very kind of forceful and, and and I think people use cars to signal in these kinds of ways things about their personalities as well. So yes. one of my favorite things is to ask people, curious your perspective on this too, like w- w- do you have a favorite card? Like is there any that like stood out to you? Oh, I love Schrodinger's cat. And maybe you want to explain the significance of Schrodinger's cats. Well, especially like having invested in the space for so long. I mean, the hard thing as an investor is Everything in retrospect seems obvious. People look back at these investment decisions like, duh, you should have obviously invested in that thing. It became huge. Yes. The problem is yes. looking forward, it's really hard to know whether something's going to be good or bad. And I think we've had this challenge with these trip economy startups. DoorDash, I, I, I linked to an article to, to introduce the Schrodinger's cat example, which basically talks about how it's just a money-losing company that, that SoftBank has backed and it's going to fail. People said the same thing about Uber and Lyft and the same thing about scooter sharing companies. But the reality is, I think as time has gone on, they've stabilized their economics and they're, they're here to stay for the long term. But there's been this period where people don't really know whether these companies are alive or dead. Because on the one hand, they keep yes. raising money. On the other hand, everybody says that they're broken. You know, they're fundamentally... Totally. Well, you, so, you've got billions of dollars pouring into micromobility and there's been very few micromobility... Well, at least in the beginning, there were very few micromobility companies that could declare any profit, you know, so... So yeah. I, I think it's like a helpful reminder that like things that, you know, aren't, don't seem obvious from the beginning could become obvious and, you know, reality is, is always shifting and a little bit uncertain and it's also pretty fun and, and the card is fun too because it says wanted, dead and alive. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was very, it's I like laugh, the starry, I laugh a lot. It's like the starry yeah. kind of appearance, it's very cute. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the thing that was really, really cool when you when you broke down cats and dogs, one is I just love the the framing because it feels to me similar to Robin Chase who did the the video about the you know heaven or hell the future of autonomous cars I'm sure you probably mm-hmm. know this so Robin was the founder of a zip car back in the day and then but she you know that, that she had this whole kind of uh story about it and then she came with a totally blanking on what she ended up calling them but there was like that idea of shared autonomous connected vehicles and the cave like caves or there was some sort of case aces and case people yeah people, I, case, I make i, I make fun of that in yeah. in chapter two come up with an yeah. analogy called date yeah like digitized and trip economy anyway yes totally right but the, but the you know but i love the the idea of being able to at least broadly classify each of these different categories and i think the, the goal speaking, overall is to create paradigms the framework like yes. it's called mobility disruption framework like it's a it's a framework yeah. for thinking about things so that people can have their own opinions and then articulate them and and take positions yeah, yeah. um it, i also do love as well that it ended up being one of those ones because typically like when i when i don't like something i'll say it's a total dog and yeah generally speaking i'm for this idea of shifting more and more towards cats this idea of you know commonly owned assets because i do believe that they will unlock a bunch and there's some couple of things in this as you were going through it and talking about obviously when you have a cat and you combine it with a mobility platform you start getting really interesting behavior or, or like opportunities to be able to build it and things like the ability to be able to build subscriptions or promo packs and like p- kind of p- pumping a lot of things together at the same time and building a platform and you gave the example of for example amazon prime you know where you've already got a huge consumer base of 100 million households in the us or whatever the number is at this point and then you know that there's going to be a huge amount of demand and it's really like the marginal cost you've got kind of this place where you can blend the cost of each particular item together into the subscription to do something that's obviously like there to retain customers as much as possible but turning on a low cost a way for them to be able to you know Prepare serve for a low marginal cost yeah 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 oh, oh, where i was going to is where they get like a, why i think they're interesting with their zooks acquisition is this idea of like in downtowns that you would be able to have like an amazon prime membership and that would get you free access to these zooks autonomous shuttles in downtown for example and it becomes like its own subway replacement or its own again it comes down to questions around who you know how how does that end up working and how would they get road space and all that sort of stuff but the the idea of being able to say like we can package a lot of these aspects together and then pair them to other packages that exist already especially when you have common asset like common asset trips you you have the ability especially with something like micro mobility to be able to get really low marginal cost and so then pairing it up and what does that start to look like? What sort of new business models start to get enabled? Because that was the issue that we had at Uber. Like that's what I was working on was what does it look like if you try and build a subscription model for $300 a month in Uber that you could get a ride outside your house anytime you wanted. And the reality is we couldn't service that because we couldn't, we couldn't get that with the marginal costs of the drivers and of the current setup for, for how we run our vehicles, which is petrol and there's high, high running costs and all that sort of stuff. Uber pull is the best example of this particular problem. You need enough density in order to enable certain kinds of services, even if those are much more efficient and better. If you don't have the density, it's hard to get it off the ground. And that's what Amazon has done so well because they basically you know, solved this on a very, very large scale. But, you know, yes. there's there's a, a major headwind that all these trip economy companies face besides the regulatory kind of bias is it's just like hard to compete against car ownership, A, because it's a sunk cost. People already own cars. So to get them to shift behavior is, is quite difficult. And then there are these massive subsidies that have gone into road infrastructure and car ownership. Like one obvious one is if you want to build any new apartment for people to live in or any new commercial space, almost everywhere in the United States, you are required to build out parking, a certain amount of parking, which is Donald Shoup, this kind of guy who's written the book on, on parking, compares it to- the free parking. is uh, one of the best books in the, in the space, yeah. He compares it to bloodletting. There's no science behind it. It's just somebody sucks out of their thumb, you know, in Austin, Texas, you should have 1.3 parking spaces per, you know, two bedroom apartment. And then across the board, everywhere you have, you know, construction, in these cities across America, you have to build out that amount of parking. And anybody living in that unit is effectively paying for that parking, whether they own a car or not. So yeah, I mean, that's the challenge that scooters are facing and, and Uber's facing in order to get this kind of density in order to build effective value propositions. In addition to consumer psychology, which is you know the focus of that third chapter, 
which is about you know bundling things together in a more appealing way, including Amazon Prime, which is really the most amazing bundle. There's so much going on there. It's really, really quite cool. Totally. I mean, I think the other part about it as well is just going how challenging where I'm most excited about is this idea of, you know, you laid it out actually, where you talked about Bird and Bumble recently doing a kind of a collaboration for like decorated bird scooters. And I think it was in Tel Aviv. Yeah. And that was specifically to advertise Bumble Web. Where I think it starts to get really interesting and it starts to help level the playing field a little bit is this idea of saying, hey, if there's a marketplace that exists for rides, we should be able to pay to service someone to arrive in our place. And we can now start to do this, right? So like I'm surprised Lime still hasn't laid, like rolled this out. We're literally like, you can say, this is a geofence location. If someone takes a scooter to here, I pay for it. It's an auto, you know, like up to, I don't know, $3 or $5 or something like that. And then Lime just goes around and sells those subscriptions. They don't even sell it. It literally just says to anybody who wants to like service it, you can get a free ride if you ride to this location. And then someone just says, for a physical retail location, I can pay to have people come in my door. Yeah. That that is like search advertising in the real world. You know? Yeah, it's, it's real world lead gen basically, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we haven't yet got there, but I start to see that that's where like these are the, the, the kind of on the landscape of, as you talk about, the sort of the landscape of what's possible. At the moment, it feels like cats have all the disadvantages in the sense of dogs have been around for a really long time. Cars infrastructure is obviously very well developed. There's a lot of, there's other really random things, like very small things. In New Zealand, if you drive to your location of work and you park and you get that car parked for free, even if the company has to pay for it, they don't have to pay fringe benefit tax. They don't have to pay any tax. But if they want to provide you with, for example, transit passes or free rides on an e-bike or whatever, they have to pay extra tax on top of that because they're giving you a benefit. The car park is free. It's just one of these very perverse planning things. And it kind of gets embedded right down to, for example, the tax system. And it's not super flexible. Whereas I see there's ability for the marketplace to adapt with common asset trips. And we're going to see an, an unlocking and a lot of innovation in that space that I can see that's going to come down the pipe. Yeah, I mean, I think people, when they take off, you know, the distorted glasses that, that they've kind of had placed on them by the kind of dominant paradigm of car ownership and start seeing the world for what it is, you know, that, you know, cars have been so heavily subsidized, they should get quite angry because we basically blocked all these different ways in which we could be innovating and improving our lives in so many different ways by completely biasing in, in favor of cars. And part of the trip triangle that's interesting isn't just the part where you can price in the cost of traffic or, or something like that. It's that you can subsidize the fact that a scooter is burning way less fuel and not threatening anybody with the threat of death that an SUV would and requires much less construction of infrastructure in order to, to build it out. So maybe these micromobility companies should be subsidized in some way Certainly, you know, in a similar way to which which cars are are being subsidized, maybe governments should shift some of the massive spend on on road infrastructure into other kinds of infrastructure that allow these kinds of trips. I'm not proposing anything crazy here. I'm trying to correct something that's crazy. The insane extent to which we completely bias. I mean, the examples you gave are great, but it's kind of like the it's a it's a kind of problem that people are so it's hard to kind of make this case to people because there are so many examples. It's a bit like pointing out like what's, you know, a crazy statement about Donald Trump. There's so many of them that it's really hard to point on one yes. particular one to get I upset agree. about. And, that, and that, that idea of being able to right size, I think, or do the true cost accounting and economics around all of this is really valid. There was a great idea, by the way, that urban transportation wallet from Evangelos Simodis, Simodis, Simodis from yeah. Synapse Partners. Yeah, I, I, I mean, very dense article for sure. But like I have been thinking about something similar. Horace and I have actually been talking about something similar about, you know, what would it look like if, for example, you could go and you rode your bike into town like the company the government should pay you relatively speaking or there should be you should be pricing the cost of the road at some point and the person who takes a bike should be rewarded for taking the cheap option rather than well, not only the, the cheap moment. option also the healthy option 100 percent, all of those benefits right but at the moment like it all accrues to really random places and so we outlay a lot of costs but we have no way to provide except in very blunt ways 
kind of with blunt tools. Yeah, here's a, uh, here's know, a topical example. Prescott, my partner at, at Red Blue Capital, wanted to get a COVID test in Miami. We were in Miami together. Mm-hmm. He called an Uber, which cost quite a lot of money, you know, to the, like the South, outside of, you know, the city of Miami to, to get to a COVID testing station. Arrived there and was told he couldn't get a COVID test. Why? Because he was not inside a vehicle. Like it was a drive-through only facility and you needed to be inside a vehicle in order to get the COVID test. So right. he had to come back without getting a COVID test, so didn't get the COVID test. And that's just another example. I mean, there's all this drive-through infrastructure that's been built out. And I think if I'm going to be like a little controversial on this, like inequality in America is quite extreme. One reason is if you can't afford to own a car, you can't afford to go to Walmart. You can't send your kids to a better school you know, across the city because it's harder to get them yep. there. It's hard to have a better paying job because you can't get there either. And there aren't many other alternatives. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the conversation about equity, traditional macro mobility, and then obviously what micro mobility can, in theory, enable, I think is a really good one. You did make a really good point as well, by the way, of having in there the ability to talk about the, the equity programs that a lot of shared micro mobility operators, for example, will pl- plug into, where the kind of the local tools or the local regulators might say, hey, you have to have this equity program where you run the micro mobility vehicles out to certain areas on a shared scheme and all that sort of stuff without kind of going like, well, you have to think about the entire transportation picture, not just like, like what it feels like with those equity programs as it's like, oh, 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 oh we've got the, the ability to kind of influence and have a say over this very small area of the operations. And so we're going to sort of say that, but actually it's an entire, it's a very, very, very local maximum of what should be a very large landscape of potential outcomes that it doesn't really harness the benefits that it could. Yeah, and there's a, there's a section in the regulatory chapter, the last chapter, where I talk about organization metrics and capital. And the organization part is important because a lot of DOTs don't have the, the tools to think about these problems systematically. Usually there's a yes. completely separate department thinking about licensing vehicles and maybe building out some road infrastructure from a, from a different department that's focused on transit and transit equity. And transit is kind of very closely tied to equity in the United States as like a, a fallback solution rather than an appealing option. But then micromobility, they, they don't know where to put it, right? Like it, it doesn't, even though it naturally ties into transit, it can fit with, with other, other modes. Right hailing, you know, like all these problems kind of crept up from a regulatory perspective and there hasn't been a systematic rethinking of how do DOT structure themselves in order to think about, you know, these things in a systematic way. And the transportation wallet you highlighted is a way to, you know, restore a framework to think about these trade-offs because governments are, you know, you can't get around the fact that the governments are making trade-off decisions. They're making decisions about how to allocate capital, how to build out infrastructure. So you, you, you need to correct the way they're looking at the world and thinking about it in order to, to arrive at better outcomes. So this brings us really to the last thing that I know that we're going to have time for, unfortunately, on this episode, which is, and I, I, yeah, there's so much more and I highly encourage you all to go check it out. But there's been one metric that I have been in the back of my mind thinking about trying to work out how to talk about it, haven't been able to officially like very articulate it very well. And I then come across it in the last part of your paper and I was I nearly fell off my chair. It's called the throughput construction cost of various transportation infrastructure. And I will link to this of course in the doc, but it was the it's it's that metric of going for the cost of the infrastructure, how many people can you actually flow through a kind of a you know a particular area so if we think about street space allocation if we have to go spend a bunch of money how many people can you flow through it was an incredibly useful diagram to be able to go of course it makes sense if we're going to go spend a bunch of money on some infrastructure we want to go spend on stuff on that's actually high throughput because that's we've you know as and, and i think to your point around how dot's are organized most dot's are organized to go and do cars so they're going to do all this stuff around how they can get flow through of traffic rather than how do we get flow through of people and then pick the mode that is the most appropriate to that particular area. And so, yeah, anyway, can you talk through the, like what, what it was that kind of, why you came up with throughput construction cost metric and, and how you've thought about it? I, I guess the thing that I, I wanted to understand is what is great about cars? It's a weird place to start, I guess, but the, the great thing about roads as a type of infrastructure is two things. One, they're pretty cheap to construct. They're not that expensive. It's about, $2 million a mile in rural areas goes a little bit up in, in urban spaces. So it's much cheaper than, say, you know, New York's the most extreme example. Like 
two two billion dollars per per mile uh, on on the Second Avenue subway mm-hmm. or five hundred million dollars a mile in many cities. So it's it's much cheaper to construct roads. So you can build them out quickly. You can build them out everywhere. You can kind of give access to people even in rural parts of a country. So that's one good thing. And the other thing is once you connect a road onto the network they're all connected. So I can connect my house onto the broader road network and I literally can get anywhere in the world as long as those roads are on the same continent, right? Like you can drive between them. So you've got a complete network. It's all built out. Whereas often transit networks are kind of segregated from one another. It's hard to get between them. So that was, you know, what is the virtue of roads is that they're, they're pretty cheap. But what's the problem? The problem is once you have a certain kind of density, they break. They, they literally break mm-hmm. and they can't be fixed. And, and the fixing makes it worse. Uh, if you add an extra lane, it adds it doubles the capacity. But if you add a third lane after that, it only adds another fifty percent. And then if you add another lane after that, it's only you know a third more capacity. And then it just goes downhill from there. So once you've got all the big highways built and you know roads throughout the city, you quickly start running out of space because the problem with roads is they can only move about two thousand people per hour per direction in a lane. So you you run out of space because that's actually not very many people. If you look at the any of these famous pictures of like all these cars parked and then people in a bus and how much less space they take up and people on bicycles. Totally. Everybody's seen those memes somewhere. But, you know, roads are just not very good at moving people fundamentally when you start running out of space. Mm -hmm. So those those are the two sides of of it. Like roads are cheap, but they have this problem. So how does that compare to every other kind of infrastructure? Well, transit's easy. It's very expensive but it's really great at in moving people. American transit has an extra problem, which is that for all sorts of reasons, I actually go into them uh, in the book, it's super expensive to build transit in, in America. It doesn't need to be. I think America can learn lessons from countries like Spain or China or Japan, but even if it's cheaper than American costs, it's still expensive to build our transit infrastructure. Pedestrian space mm-hmm. is, is great in that it can move lots of people and it's good to exercise, et cetera. But it's not going to get people that far. You're not going to walk across a city. It's not going to solve a, a lot of trips. And then there's this actually there's this final type of infrastructure that's I mentioned at the beginning. I call micro mobility infrastructure, and it's really interesting because it's creating a new new paradigm and set of possibilities. And so I guess TCC, this transportation construction cost, really kind of puts into contrast why micro mobility lanes are so interesting. Because they cost less than roads to construct, but they move way more people because you can pack bicycles in a lot more densely. And people will say, like, oh, nobody's going to use you know, bicycle lanes. But the problem is we just haven't built out sufficient infrastructure. So I compare yes. Seattle to Copenhagen in the book, where you know, in, in, in Denmark they've actually made massive investments into it. And it turns out people do ride bicycles. 50% of people ride bicycles to work. You know, 40, technically 49% of commutes in Copenhagen are happening on bicycles. And it's basically like once you realize that you can invest in this kind of infrastructure and, you know, it doesn't even cost you as much as roads and has much, you know, much more positive externalities, then you can be living in a very different kind of world. And it's not at the expense of cars necessarily. It's just, you know, favoring a new option that gives people more choices. And then the last point to make about micromobility infrastructure that I think is super interesting is once you combine it with a trip economy, you have this kind of dynamic power of these marketplaces creating, you know, new innovations, startups, you know, scooter sharing, e-bike sharing, yep. but also food delivery, e-bikes for, for food delivery or uh, these e-cargo bikes for package delivery. That space can then be filled up by the trip economy and you can actually get significant benefits that kind of fix the brokenness of road space running out and causing massive congestion, which is, you know, one of the biggest problems in, in most cities in the world. Yeah. I just loved it because it visualizes the cost. There's been a number of studies done on, for example, you know, bike lane infrastructure and the cost of bike lane infrastructure and that it has a very, very high, what they call like internal rate of, or what is it called? Um, not internal rate of return. BCR. We, we, in, we, we use this business case review framework in, in, in New Zealand, as I'm sure a lot of OECD countries will use to be able to assess the value of an infrastructure investment. And so you'd look for generally something, anything that's over one, it, you know, it sort of becomes net beneficial relative to the other kind of benefits that you might not be able to unlock. Most micro-mobility infrastructure is sort of anywhere from 10 to 20. Like good quality infrastructure is definitely in the sort of range of like 20, which is like a 20 to 1 return on your capital, for, which is in theory like preposterously insane for any government to be able to unlock. 
you know like of course you want to go to as much of that as possible and i think the 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 part then becomes it's like how do you how do those stack up relative to the other options and I think there's also a value in there. One part that I'd love to see, and we maybe we can talk about this about how we can, how I can help do this, but like visualize it, is going like, what's the variance inside of each, the, the, like the cost for, for moving the throughput per people per hour? Because I do think that there's like substantial amounts of yeah, variance you across the size the time of like, day. Yeah, variance across the variance across the sort of the both the throughput the and also the costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and that, for example, like roads are relatively known and understood, but you know, I, th- I think micromobility over time is going to get cheaper and that the, the, the amount that you can throughput on this stuff will obviously, I think, obviously increase as well. I think all the things you're highlighting are really interesting in part because we, for the most part, these aren't policy discussions that people are having. And part of the goal was just to create a framework to start having these conversations. I don't know what the right mix of micromobility lanes versus roads are and when you should convert, you know, a lane and a bridge, you know, in, in a city into a bike lane or something like that. But it's partly because we just haven't bothered to think about this systematically. We don't have economic tools to make these trade-offs. And we don't have data, you know, systematic data. But, and, and this is like central to our economy. Like, pe- like people moving is the economy. It is our lives, yes. right? Like getting places, yes. trips are life, right? So it's kind of crazy how little there there is in terms of a developed framework for thinking about this. And TCC is just an attempt to take a step in, in opening up this conversation. Yeah, I um I had a I've been doing a bit of work here with the Ministry of Transport and the NCTA, which is the transport agency, around what this around this and I I did a presentation not quite like this. You got yours is a lot more thorough than uh, what I did, but mine was like, hey, you should pay attention to micromobility, and these are the reasons why it's cheap, it's um it's it's beneficial, it's going to unlock all these things, and on a per kilometer basis, it's going to be orders of magnitude cheaper than anything else. And you need to reallocate your spending from the the way that you think about transport infrastructure spend towards catering to where all the sales of the vehicles are, which is we sell way more electric bikes and, 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 and scooters than we will almost new cars next year, for example. And yet, where are we spending the money? Well, we spend it all on roads. And so is there a way to re-pivot? And I had the head of strategy at the time for Ministry of Transport said to, he, he kind of like, he's like, I believe everything you're saying and we're an oil tanker and we take forever to change. And so the one part that I do want to just cover off on the, at the end, and I'm conscious of time and all that sort of stuff, but is how do you think this goes from where we are today to governments being able to absorb this? Is it bu- building up more tools like, for example, TCC as a, or getting TCC as a more known pa- metric or paradigm? Can you see anything else that you've found that, you, that you've kind of come across where people are able to talk about this and get the governments on board with being able to say, hey, we want to harness and utilize all this stuff and, and really allow this transport to be disrupted. And we want to be able to like know how to watch that and have metrics to be able to assess it as well. Yeah, I think we're already in the midst of a revolution. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm providing a certain set of arguments to people who look at this already and they go, you know, this is obvious intuitive. You know, even this person you mentioned who's on the other side of the table who has to make spending allocation decisions, they they kind of know intuitively that, that there should be a shift. They know that the world we're living in is like not ideal and, and, and the changes that could be made. But I think what I'm trying to do is is give argument and structure that when we look at this, we can be much more systematic and make real choices and, and have a paradigm to do it. Because, you know, if there's if there's like a hazy environment where there's no light being shone onto the reality, people can keep going and keep you know repeating the same choices even if they're really really bad. But the moment there's a light shone on it and it's it, it becomes impossible to ignore reality because every time you look at it, that is the reality there. And I think this lens of of TCC means that anybody who's thinking about you know a an infrastructure investment suddenly goes like, you know, why are we actually building another road? Like it's only increasing road capacity by a fraction of a percentage and it costs this much. This money could be used for something different. And that's Mm. not just true for people in regulation who I hope will read this and I think a lot of the things will click and they'll they'll suddenly have, you know, the, the, the younger folks in these departments sometimes who like, you know, pushing for changes will have more ways to explain it and there'll be kind of a shift from within. But I think also just the kind of average person who interacts with transportation systems but also a citizen and a voter can vote in you know both with their wallet and with you know their their actual political power that their cities their towns their country can just you know make different allocations you know i I think transportation affects all of us so directly because 
there's no way to live a life without you know getting around and, and going places so to the extent that it's really quite messed up we all have an interest in fixing it well yeah <laughs> i i i just as i said in the beginning i was so excited when i read this and it's absolutely something i wish i'd written myself and so in that regard i can only say thank you and I think a seminal contribution to the space as we think about, and I will certainly be referring to it and a whole range of different things. I'm gonna be talking, to, I've got a meeting with our transport minister in the next couple of weeks and my aim is to be able to show a bunch of these graphs to him so that he, uh, yeah. The, the, other, the other neat thing is I, I found a really cool URL that redirects to the site, like it's yellow.cab. If you type in yellow.cab, it re and it was just like, I, I found this URL. I was, you know, in the process of buying domain names for red, blue, capital, red.blue, and came across this. And I'm like, how is this domain available? Like, how is this possible? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody's, like, and, and what was hilarious is green.cab had been bought, and blue.cab had been bought, and pink.cab had been bought. No and, and yellow way. And yellow.cab was just free and available. And, and I left it for like, a month and then I looked at it again and it was still available and I was like how is and and, and then I oh, thought it was just dude. like I, I, I need to use this as a redirect to the book so that's a pretty neat thing and I think it makes it much easier well you to go like, and sell it and it yeah you go and sell it and that funds your your guys operations for the next two years because I feel like that's a pretty valuable uh, little URL there yeah <laughs> although like, hey, I feel well, like but, Uber and Lyft are just disrupting all yellow cabs so maybe not so useful totally so. Hello, anyway, thank you so much. I, I actually would love to also have you on again at some point in the future because I really want to talk to you also about the investing work that you're doing because I know we've obviously just yeah. gone and dug, dug into this, but I, but, you know, I think you were investing. History is, is incredibly interesting and obviously where you guys are getting with Red Blue as well. So yeah, let's let's tee that up for, for maybe a, a couple of months from now and we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, in the meantime, thank you again so much for, for, for this and for, for making the time to talk to you today. Yeah, wonderful to be on and really enjoy the conversation.